0: So on on Monday morning this week, I took my car in for an oil change and some other needed work. The lady at the front desk told me it would take a couple hours, so I grabbed my Romans journal that I got from RP, my pen, and I went on a walk. As I walked, I read through Romans 2 over and over and over again. Coming to the realization This is not going to be an easy text to preach. And then I got to my destination, which was the Parker Cemetery off Parker Road. As I walked past grave after grave, I read names, counted dates, skimmed inscriptions, looked at the beautiful artworks, the, the engraved crosses and religious symbols, I couldn't help but to wonder, with Romans 2 on my mind, what would these people, no longer walking the streets of Parker, but nonetheless alive, disembodied souls, of course, but what would these people say to us? Like if they had the pulpit this morning at RP, what would they tell us? Now, like us, they have not yet experienced that final day. Judgment Day. But I have a feeling they already know what outcome awaits them. Some of these souls right now are in the presence of Christ. Inexpressible joy, full of glory, much better than life in Parker ever was. And after judgment, they will remain with Christ, but with a new glorified body and on a redeemed earth. The others, well, the others are in hell, waiting the judgment. And according to our text this morning, wrath and fury, tribulation and distress await them. So what would they say to us? Lenora Hope or Andrew Tucker, Bliss Haynes, or James Parker, whom our town is named after. Many of Parker's first settlers are just buried down the road. According to the headstones, many selfless mothers and fathers, kind sons and generous daughters, church attenders, upright citizens, moral men and women, and of course, religious folk. What would they say to us? I think they would say something like this. When it's all said and done, God will render a just verdict to every person according to their works. And religiosity will not save. Let me say that again. When it's all said and done, God will render a just verdict to every person according to their works and religiosity will not save. I believe that's also the message of Romans chapter 2. So if you would, open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 2. Before we jump into verse 1, I do want to set up um, for our passage this morning and for the rest of the Romans series a little Romans context. Right, Romans is my favorite book of the Bible. Hence, the, the sport coat. And although I agree with the Puritan theologian Thomas Drax that Romans is the quintessence and perfection of saving doctrine, and that Romans truly is the gospel according to Paul, or like Luther says, the purest gospel. But the thing we do need to be aware of when tackling a book like Romans is the fact that it's not a systematic theology book. That it's actually a letter. A letter written to a specific people, namely the church in Rome, and written for a specific purpose. So a little historical context. We have to understand who Paul is writing this letter to. Romans is definitely for us. But it's only for us after the fact that it was written to a church. The church in Rome was not founded by Peter or Paul. We actually don't know who planted this church. What we do know is that Jews from everywhere, including Rome, came to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and many heard Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 and became Christians. Scholars will say that it is these Roman Jews who got saved at Pentecost in Jerusalem, who then went back home to Rome and started meeting as the church in Rome. We know that the earliest form of the church was still seen as a sect of Judaism. They met in the synagogues. Their Bibles were the exact same as the Jews. And these Jewish Christians were desperate to persuade their Jewish brothers and sisters That like Paul said in Romans 1, this Jesus was promised beforehand through God's prophets in our holy scriptures. These Jesus people, they weren't just another religion in Rome. Jesus was the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. He was the long-awaited and much-anticipated Jewish messiah. Now we learn from Acts 18.2 when Paul meets Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth that these Jews had to leave Rome with all other Jews because of the emperor. Emperor Claudius had put in an edict for all Jews to leave Rome. Church history tells us that this order was put in place because of Jewish disturbances in Rome because of Christ over christ claudius was over the ruckus and so he kicks all jews out of rome that's one way to handle conflict you got to understand though gentile god fearers non-jews who are coming into the synagogue were getting saved so the church at rome was a mixed group jew and gentile Though the Jewish believers planted this church and had much influence and authority over it, when they get kicked out of Rome, who's left in charge? The uncircumcised Gentiles. Well, some time passes and Claudius dies. His edict dies with him. Emperor Nero now takes the throne and he allows Jews back into Rome. Because this dude was not going to miss out on any extra taxes to be collected. Well, you can imagine the tension. And I think we need to feel this tension if we want to feel all the weight that the letter of Romans is carrying. The Jewish Christians who do come back to Rome are no longer the majority of this church. Their influence has plummeted. And they're not keen on everything that these Gentile Christians are doing namely not adhering to the Mosaic law, the Old Covenant. The book of Jubilees, for instance, written maybe in 100 BC, but many of the Jews would have known this book well. Here's what it says about one of those Jewish laws, circumcision. Quote, anyone who is born whose flesh is not circumcised on the eighth day is not from the sons of the covenant which the Lord made for Abraham, since he is from since he is from the children of destruction. And there is therefore no sign upon him so that he might belong to the Lord because he is destined to be destroyed and annihilated from the earth and to be uprooted from the earth because he has broken the covenant of the Lord our God. This is the social media feed that these Jewish Christians are being influenced by. All the while, their fellow Gentile church members are uncircumcised, bringing their bacon-wrapped hot dogs to church potlucks and playing soccer on Saturdays, their Sabbath, right? All all jokes aside, these Gentiles were definitely not adhering to the law of Moses. Well, we're going to deal with these two groups later on in Romans 14 and 15. Paul calls the, the Gentile Christians strong because of their liberty in Christ. He calls the Jewish Christians weak because of their adherence to the law and their identity in the law. But an interesting aspect to note in this letter is Paul's aim for these two groups. His goal isn't to make them monocultural. His goal isn't to make two churches, one for the Jews, one for the Gentiles, the south side of Rome and the north side of Rome. No, rather, his aim is, for them is, to, is for them to welcome one another to the table as siblings. And how in the world is that possible? The gospel. The gospel according to Paul. Unlike us, these Christians didn't have any other options. Right? Scholars say that there may have been a hundred or so Christians in Rome. Maybe five house churches. The gospel not only had to be what made both groups right before God, but the power of the gospel had to be the means by which these siblings in God's family could come together at the table. Can we relate to that kind of tension in our cultural moment? I mean, have you seen a conversation end well with someone who, who voted for Trump and another for Biden? Even amongst family members, like change the topic or don't come back for Christmas. Or what about the vaccines or the mass? I mean, some Christians, blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ, cannot experience fellowship with one another right now because of these different opinions on issues and many other social issues. Fault lines are being drawn everywhere. The Barna Group did, did some research last year and showed that one-third of Christians, post-COVID, still attend the same church. One-third of Christians found another church that agree with them on these tertiary issues, and one-third of Christians no longer go to church. It would seem that we have a weak gospel in this country. But if you want a New Testament book that explains with clarity how to be made right with God, Romans is your jam. But if you want a a New Testament book, as you look around the church in our country and see the fracturing and the divisiveness going on right now, And want answers to how in the world is Jesus' prayer in John 17 for the church to be one, to be united. How in the heck is that going to come to fruition? Well, Romans is your jam. Because this book is all about the gospel. And a deep understanding of this gospel, according to Paul, is what we need more than anything. So with that context in mind, let's jump into Romans chapter 2. I'll begin reading verse 1. This is the word of God. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Paul begins this chapter in a diatribe with a made-up character, a Jew. Paul's laser-like focus for this entire chapter is this. When it's all said and done, God will render a just verdict for every person according to their works. And religiosity will not save. Paul is going to continue unpacking this bad news that he started last week. This bad news is not simply for the irreligious pagans out there, but equally bad news for the religious folk. Paul is leveling out the playing field in Romans chapter 2. I would imagine that when Phoebe read this letter to the church in Rome after chapter 1, there were probably some pretty loud amens from the jews remember from chapter one last week paul says that god's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness then after explaining that the pagan gentiles are without excuse because what was known to them by natural revelation was suppressed and instead they exchanged the truth of god for a lie paul goes on to list several sins Right, The downward spiral from Eden to Rome was not pretty. Oh, but don't you love what Paul does here in chapter 2? The Jews would have loved chapter 1. We love chapter 1. They, like many of us, were the religious. They were zealous for God's law. So they condemn, like us, all the sins in Paul's list from chapter 1. So what does Paul do? He gives them the same judgment. He levels the playing field. Like when Nathan the prophet rebukes David for his sin of adultery and murder. How does he do it? He gets David all fired up with the story about the rich man, how he took the poor man's only lamb and sacrificed it for the party. David's all angry. That man needs to die. And Nathan says, you are the man. Paul does the same thing. He says in verse 1 in chapter 2, Therefore you, Jews, have no excuse. And in verse 5, You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul is not accusing them of judging. Contrary to our culture, judging right from wrong is actually biblical. Paul's condemning them because they judge And yet, do the same things. They're hypocrites. Look down at verse 3 again. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Look down at verse 17. This is what Paul's talking about. But if you call yourself a Jew, so he's talking to the Jew here. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are assured that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, here comes the rebuke, verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? These are all rhetorical questions. Then he says, you boast in the law. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. And then in verse 25, Paul quotes Isaiah the prophet in his own prophetic tone and says, for it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you yikes. Hey, religious folk, you're not fooling anyone. Paul says you find your, you find your identity in your religiosity and it will not save you on the day of wrath that is drawing near. This wrath of God is not only being revealed to those really bad sinners over there, but the wrath of of God. The day of God's wrath is coming for the religious, the hypocrites. This reminds me of Jesus' parable of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector that we already read this morning. Jesus said, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. This, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. And give a tenth of all I get. When all is said and done, God will render a just verdict for every person according to their works. And religiosity will not save. Now, now Paul may be speaking to the Jew in this passage who relied on the law. But in application, I think we must see ourselves in this passage He's speaking to church folk, the moral, the religious, the ones who would never commit the big sins. I saw one study this week that shows that Christians are as likely as unbelievers to visit pornographic websites, to get drunk, to do illegal drugs, to lie, to get out of a difficult situation, to retaliate. To say unkind things about others? And what about Jerry Bridges' list of respectable sins? Ungodliness, unthankfulness, anxiety, discontentment, pride, selfishness, impatience, anger, sins of the tongue, lack of self control, envy, jealousy, worldliness. I mean, can we admit that we, church, are not much better than this made up Jew in Paul's argument? Where Paul can say the name of God is blasphemed amongst outsiders because of you. Like the Pharisee, we say, Thank God that I'm not like the people in that list from Romans 1. I mean, I go to church, I'm straight, I've been baptized, I pray, I do my devotions every day, I don't cuss. I mean, I'm reading Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology for crying out loud. When it's all said and done, God will render a just verdict for every person according to their works. And religiosity will not save. I mean, there's people, people you guys know, people I know, that want nothing to do with the church. And it's not because the gospel is offensive and the gospel is offensive, but it's because the church is full of hypocrisy. Brennan Manning said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. I think he's right. The religious here find their identity in religiosity. The text says they're presuming on God's character, his kindness, his patience, his love. Like Voltaire says, God forgives. It's his job. We can all shake our head at that stupid comment. But haven't we all said in our hearts before, I'll sin, I'll ask God for grace later. Paul is leveling the playing field. And he tells the religious, just like he did the irreligious, you are without excuse. When it's all said and done and the day of God's wrath is here, God will render a just verdict to every person according to their works and religiosity will not save God's judgment is just. Right? And we love justice. It's it's the reason why baseball fans still can't stand the Houston Astros after two years. Right, especially if you're a Dodger fan, and if you don't know anything about baseball, uh, the, the the Astros got caught cheating a couple of years ago. They used the camera system to relay signs to their hitters so the hitters knew what pitch was coming. It's equivalence would be like getting correct answers to a spelling bee through an invisible earbud. Now, now they, they did the investigation. They found out the Astros were guilty, but the Astros got to keep their world series title. Baseball world was totally upset. This is unfair injustice, right? We hate unfair. Our God is Fair. He is just, and he will render a just verdict on judgment day. Every wrong will be made right. Doesn't that make you want to rejoice? Unless, of course, we're the ones in the wrong. Let's continue in verse 6. for God shows no partiality. Now at first this passage can be rather alarming. Right? Is Paul teaching a justification by works? It's kind of what it sounds like. He will render to each one according to their works, eternal life for those who do good. Maybe the reformation got this one wrong. Not so fast. Now, like Pastor Mark said a couple weeks ago, Paul in the letter to the Romans is after the obedience of faith, a faith that is simply intellectual assent is no faith at all. Like the book says, like the book of James says, faith without works is dead. But is that what Paul is after here? Many who do evil and obey unrighteousness will face God's wrath and fury, tribulation and distress others whose faith is shown by good works will receive eternal life because of these good works? I don't think so. Although works are the fruit of true faith, right, faith without works is no faith at all. But what Paul is saying in these six verses is that judgment is impartial and based on works. New Testament scholar Doug Moose says, the promise of eternal life For those who do good is fully valid. In other words, a sinless life. Perfection to the law of God gets you eternal life. Basically what Paul is saying in these hellfire judgment day verses. Is that there are two destinies for every single person who walks the earth. God's wrath and fury. Which include distress and tribulation and eternal life, which include glory, and honor and peace and God will be a just judge, a fair judge on that final day He will show no favoritism, and your religiosity will not save you your your church attendance could be perfect your daily Time in the word never missed. Fasting and tithing consistent. No one murdered. Fabulous. I hope your life is marked by good fruit. But on this final day that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 2, God will render a destiny to every single person according to their works. And God's standard is. Is none other than perfection. God's wrath and fury or eternal life. There's only two options. Let's continue Paul's argument in chapter 2. Look with me at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law, Gentiles, will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law, Jews, will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. The irreligious and the religious will be judged. All sinners, those without the law, the irreligious will perish without the law. And those sinners with the law, the religious will be judged by the law. The only ones justified on that day are the doers of the law. Now this poses a problem even for the really, really good legalists. Listen to Jesus' brother James in James 2:10. He says, "For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it." Yikes. Now I stopped. Doug Moo's quote from earlier, about halfway through, so let, let me finish it here. He said, The promise of eternal life is for those, uh, the, the promise of eternal life for those who do good is fully valid, but the power of sin prevents anyone from doing that good to the degree to merit salvation. Paul is leveling out the playing field. He is telling the Jews and Gentiles in Rome, that you guys have more in common than you think. You guys have more in common than you think. Verse 14, Paul continues, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, when according to my gospel... God judges the secrets of men by Jesus by Christ Jesus. Some think that this means that, that pagan Gentiles can actually be justified on that final day by their works. But that is not at all what Paul is saying, and that will become much more clear as we continue on in Romans, especially next week. And he's also not speaking of a Christian, even though law written on their heart sounds a lot like Jeremiah and the New Covenant people. I believe Paul is actually speaking of pagan Gentiles who will never come into contact with Jewish law, and yet by general revelation, they actually do some things in line with God's law. This phrase, law written on their hearts, this is Paul's way to affirm what Greek tradition assumed all people had wired into their being. They called it the unwritten law or the natural law. This was an innate moral compass For doing right and wrong. Paul is saying that even Gentiles without the Mosaic law get it right sometimes. So, for example, inwardly they know they shouldn't kill. So, when they don't kill, they become a law unto themselves. We see this in verse 25 as well. Look at verse 25. For circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Circumcision was a huge identity marker for the Jew. This proves This proved that they were God's people. Paul says you break the law and your badge of honor, circumcision, is worth nothing. It's actually uncircumcision. And if the uncircumcised Gentile kept the precept of the law perfectly, they would actually be justified in God's sight. They would be God's people, the circumcised. But like we see in this passage from verse 15, We just read the Gentiles' conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, right? So so on Judgment Day, the pagans, they will either know that they have fallen short of that unwritten law or the ones who think they are good enough to be justified and go talk to some some people in Parker um, about their eternal destiny. A lot of people fall into this category. We think we're good people. Paul says, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. So even these confident, good people, and I know some some great irreligious folk. Some of the sweetest people I know, but I don't know their secret thoughts. God knows everything, and on that day, he will render everyone according to their works. Actions, thoughts, motives. The Apostle Paul has leveled the playing field. The irreligious and the religious have no ground to stand on. This church in Rome, Jew and Gentile, have more in common than they think. So what would those buried at the Parker Cemetery tell us this morning when it's all said and done god will render a just verdict according to your works and your religiosity will not save happy sunday (laughs) the men at the men's retreat are eating pancakes right now Well, what will save? Right? If it's not irreligion or religion, what do we need? Tim Keller said there are not just two ways to respond to God, but three irreligion, religion, and the gospel. This is what we need. This is what the divisive church at Rome needed, and this is what we need this morning. Redemption Parker. Lucky for us, Romans is all about the gospel. So we're going to get gospelized over the next seven months. In our passage this morning, we see it right there in verse 16. In the midst of this tough chapter, Paul says, this is all according to my gospel. Though in a couple weeks, Paul will get crystal clear of his understanding of this good news. I'm still going to let Paul's gospel land the plane this morning. Or else we'll walk out of here extremely depressed. We saw earlier in verse 6 that God will render each one according to his works. Holding out the possibility of eternal life for those who do good. But Paul labors even harder in this chapter and will continue even more next week to show us that Jew and Gentile, me and you... The irreligious and the religious don't live up to God's standard. Rather, we've all been affected by the fall. All of us. So wrath and fury, tribulation and distress await all humanity. But God. In chapter 5 of this letter, according to Paul's gospel, he tells this church and us... That God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We've seen in this text that he is a just and impartial God. He can't just forgive sin. Sin must be punished. So what does he do? He takes on our punishment the irreligious and the religious, the Jew and the Gentile. He takes our sin on himself. The Son of God, the second person of the triune God, humbles himself and takes on humanity. The Son of God became a man, the God-man. He takes our nature so that he can live the life we couldn't live and die the death that we Deserve. Paul said in this passage this morning that it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Jesus is the only doer. He did the law. The only human who never sinned. So he is the one person who earns eternal life. The one person Who earns eternal life. But he doesn't earn for himself. What he already had with the father. I Paul says to the Corinthian church. For our sake. For our sake. God made him. To be sin. Who knew no sin. So that we might become. The righteousness of God. Our sin, according to this text, on the day of God's judgment, earns us distress and tribulation. Our sin earns us God's fury and God's wrath. Those aren't popular words to use. Instead, our substitute drinks full the cup of God's wrath on our behalf on the cross. And right before he dies, he says, it is finished. And now through faith alone, faith alone in Christ alone, we can receive the righteousness of God. When it's all said and done, God will render a just verdict for every person according to their works. All of us, those in the Parker Cemetery and us who might soon be in the Parker Cemetery, all of us will stand before God's throne and he will judge us based on our works or, through faith alone, Christ's finish work. Wrath and fury, tribulation and distress, or eternal life. Glory, honor, and peace. This is my child with whom I am well pleased. Great is an understatement for how great this exchange is. Kevin DeYoung says, There is nothing more freeing, revolutionary, and precious than to be justified by faith alone through the satisfaction and perfect righteousness of Christ alone. Let us never tire of such a great salvation. There's some application for us right there. Let us never tire, Redemption Parker, of such a great salvation. Just like we've seen in this text that we can presume on God's character. We can also get used to the gospel. So much so that it loses its sweetness. Oh, let that never be us, church. Let that never be us. Let us never tire of such a great salvation. And lastly... This gospel not only saves us from God's wrath to God himself as a righteous child of God, but it also brings us into fellowship with God's people. Because of the pervasiveness of sin, these Jews and Gentiles had more in common than they thought. But also because of the gospel according to Paul, These Jews and Gentiles had much more in common with each other than they thought. Look at verse 28 as we close. Verse 28, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. In Galatians 6.15, Paul says something very similar. Neither circumcision means anything. What counts is new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule to the Israel of God. There is a new people of God. And God's new covenant people are defined by nothing except new creation. Circumcised hearts. What theologians call regeneration. Regeneration. This work of the Spirit is what even enables us to have faith. So even our faith is a gift from God. So far be it from us, RP, to boast in anything except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the message the church at Rome needed to hear. This was the message that brings unity to people who otherwise do not have much in common or even hate each other. This is the message that caused this church to welcome each other to the table as siblings. This unified people that this gospel creates is what we, the capital C church in America, and us at RP must be. And a unified church is what a watching world desperately needs to see. Do we believe Paul's gospel? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace, your amazing grace. Help us to never tire. Help us to, help us to never presume on you, God. Help us to, to see gospel with new eyes every morning as your mercies are, are continually new for us, God. Lord, thank you for this gospel that saves us to you, saves us from your wrath, and saves us to one another. We pray that we would be a gospel people, a city set on the hill here in Parker and to the ends of the earth. Amen.